0: Is in verses seven and eight this evening, that's as we'll really get, uh, hopefully make it through these two verses of our study, only 13 verses in this second epistle of John, as we've mentioned previously. So we'll pick up our reading in verse seven. "For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, as I've mentioned several times already throughout our study of this epistle, 3 John is divided into five sections. Verses 1 through 3 is the first section. Verses 4 through 6 is the second division or section. Verses 7 through 11 makes up the third. And then verse 12 is the fourth. And verse 13 is the fifth. And as we've seen already, uh, this is a summarization of the first epistle, which John has written. The same truths, by large, he mentions here in the second epistle, as he does within the first. But, of course, in the first epistle, it's in, in much greater detail than he does so in this in this second or the third epistle. The second and third epistle are very much so alike as well, um, and we've seen the uh, audience to whom John has written in the the. the First epistle being that he's writing to a general audience, a general epistle. The second, he's writing to a specific lady unnamed or a specific church body unnamed. And then the third, of course, he's writing to Gaius um, specifically. And so we see that they're not written to the same audience necessarily, but yet in each epistle he, he addresses much of the same matters and, and summarizes them within these latter two uh, compared to that, which he delves into in great detail within the first epistle. Now, it, we've seen that love and truth uh, is really emphasized in this second epistle, and that they are to be equally expressed, equally demonstrated, and equally received. And to prefer one above the other or to reject one over the other is to misunderstand both. And so, when we consider love and truth, we don't get to pick and choose one or the other and reject the other, but we must understand that we are to receive and, and, and demonstrate and express the truth, and the love of God as it's been manifested, personified in the person of Christ and, of course, given to us in His Word. Last week, we examined the second division of this epistle, which consists of verses 4 through 6, as I've mentioned, and we spent some time last week comparing 2 John 4 and 3 John 4. In verse 4 of this second epistle, he says, "...I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father." Now, one of the significant similarities between these two verses of these two epistles in verse 4 of 2 John and verse 4 of 3 John, we'll read verse 4 of 3 John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So as you can hear and as you read, you see it's very similar in its content to what he says in in, in 2 John verse 4. And so, one of the similarities, of course, is the joy expressed by John within both 2nd and 3rd John, verse 4. Notice what he says I rejoiced greatly, he says, in 2nd John 4. And then in 3rd John 4, he says, I have no greater joy. And the context, as I've mentioned, of 2nd John is that of John's recognition that there were children of this lady or possibly this church body who continued in the truth even though they were, there were also deceivers who had made the attempt to persuade these individuals to turn from the truth and turn to heresies, which we will begin to examine uh, or continue to see and, and examine through our study. Second John verse 7 says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a, is a deceiver and an antichrist. So we'll get into more of this this evening. The context of this statement in Third John, when he says, I have no greater joy is that the joy of Gaius and others walking in truth superseded the discouragement resulting from those who did not embrace and live in the truth. In 3 John verses 9 and 10, he, he can, explains this further when he says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church." So Diotrephes, obviously, is one who is not walking in truth, and, and he's wanting to have the preeminence among the people, and so he would not allow John or others or those who received the brethren, he didn't want them to even be a part. He wanted to isolate this body of believers and, and of course, not allow others to come in and, and join and be a part, but wanted to hold a, 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 a position of preeminence among this body of believers. In verse 5 we see, And now I beseech thee, lady, John writes, Not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from from the beginning, that we love one another. As I mentioned in the overview of our study of this epistle, in many ways this epistle is a concise summarization of the truths John explained in his first epistle. We see in 1 John 2, 7 that he wrote in the first epistle, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word by which ye have heard from the beginning. And then we see as well, as we just mentioned in verse 5 of Second John, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. So here John again says that this is, some, this is nothing new. This is what we had from the beginning, specifically talking about uh, back to even the time of Moses and, and God's command for them to love one another as it was given uh, throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Then we come to verse 6, and this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And we saw last week that this love in which we are to love others is rooted in our love for God because of his love for us. For this reason, John declares, and this is love that we walk after his commandments. Now notice he says we are to love one another. This is the commandment in verse 5. But then in verse 6, this is love. So now he expresses what this love is. And here you find again love and truth coupled together and linked. Because again, we cannot say, oh, we, 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 we walk in truth and we demonstrate, uh, we live we live out the truth and yet not do so in love. And we cannot say, oh, we sacrifice truth for the sake of love. We want to be you know, all inclusive and we want to just uh, allow, uh, tolerate everyone and everything in that respect. No, there is love and truth and truth and love and these two are inseparably linked within this context which John writes. And so we see here that he says that this is no new commandment, but yet it's that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. But then he says, this is love that we walk after his commandments. So one of those commandments is that we love one another, but it's not the only commandment. And what John is saying is, here is love demonstrated that we are following after God, that we are walking in the truth of God. And this obviously demonstrates the purest form of our love for him, which is a direct result of his love for us. But also, if we have a love for him... Because of his love for us, that same love that he has given us is going to be demonstrated to others. And John has already dealt with this intensely within the first epistle. We have seen through the test, uh, the, the, the test of love that John provides, the test of truth, and so on and so forth. That we have under we understand from the first epistle that this. Walking in truth and walking in love, again, are inseparably linked together. They are not separated, but they are inseparable. And so we find that you cannot truly walk in truth without doing so in manifesting the love of God in Christ through you, but neither can you manifest God's love as Christ is in you without walking in His truth. And so he says, this is love that we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it, so we love one another. And if we really love one another, it's only because that love is being, uh, being initiated from God's love in us and to us, and that is a reciprocated love then unto him. For this reason, John declares that, that this is love that we walk after his commandments. In 1 John 2, 5 we read, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know, or know we, that we are in him. 1 John 5, 3 For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Here you find it again. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Not love for God. This is the love of God. The love of God being demonstrated in you is that you are following after Him. And that's what John is saying here. And so he he again rehearses this to us. He reemphasizes this truth to us in this second epistle. So tonight we begin our study of the third division, as I've mentioned, verses 7 through 11, which is the largest portion or the body of this epistle. And within this main body of the epistle or letter, John provides a serious warning. So let's read verses 7 through 11 all together this evening. We're only going to really focus in tonight on verses 7 through 8 mainly, but let's, let's look at 7 through 11. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath been, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Now notice, this is interesting, of course, because John is stating a warning here, and then he again reemphasizes things he's already taught in great detail within the first epistle. If you were with us during our first our study of First John. This should be very familiar to you as you read through this. You should, be re, you should be reminded of that which John has already stated within his first epistle. Even about those who are deceitful, even about those who are not walking in truth, things such as that. Verse 7 begins this third division of this second epistle. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, while verse 7 begins the third division, which is the main body of this epistle, as I mentioned, verse 6 leads us into the third division of this brief epistle. So let's go back to verse 6 for a moment. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So John emphasizes that while we are to walk in love and truth, as he stated, this is love that we walk after his commandments, he further warns that there are many deceivers in verse 7 who detract from the message of truth. So we are to follow after his commandments. We are to walk in his truth. But yet there are many deceivers that are detracting from his truth and again attempting to persuade that these believers to whom John writes, they are attempting to persuade them to forsake truth and to follow after lies. And that still exists today. John readily calls out all those who would deny the incarnation of Christ or deny that Jesus was the Christ, the Anointed One, God's only begotten Son. He is the Messiah. And so John says if anyone does this, he's a deceiver, and he's, he's declaring, of course, then, that uh, Jesus is not the Christ, he's not come in the flesh This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Remember something, there is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. There is no neutral ground when it comes to truth. There is no fence straddling. People attempt to do this all the time. But there is no fence straddling. You are either with the Lord or you are not. You are either submitted to Him or you are not. You are either a believer in Him or you are not. But there is no middle ground here. He is either you are for Christ, with Christ, in Christ, or you are anti-Christ, and that's what John is saying here. Those who say He has not come in the flesh, that Jesus is not the Messiah, the Anointed One, or that He did not literally come in the flesh, or that this Jesus who did come is not the Messiah, He's not the Christ. This is anti-Christ. This is like, remember what anti means. It is simply that of being against, against Christ. So remember when Jesus. The disciples said, oh, there are are those who were casting out demons in in your name, but they were not of us. Do you remember that? And Jesus said, and we forbade them to do so, the disciples said. And Jesus said, no, don't forbid them to do that. And why did he say not to forbid them? He said, if they are not against me, then they are for me. Even though they did not exist that 12 called out disciples Jesus says no if they are doing the work my father's work in my name then you don't mess with them because if they're not against me they are for me so you are either against Christ or you are for Christ but notice this too those who are for him meaning those who are not against him the work of God will be manifested through them and in them verse 8 John goes on to say This is where we're really going to just kind of settle in for this evening. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, this is truly an interesting statement made by John. Scripture has much to say concerning the rewards which God will give those who faithfully serve Him. However, many people put an emphasis on reward in relation to their service or work for God. I know people who will make statements, I've heard it said before, and they'll talk about the rewards, the rewards, and they emphasize and talk so much about the rewards. And are there rewards to be had or received? Of course there are. Scripture teaches that. But are these things emphasized throughout Scripture as though this is why we do what we do, so we can get some reward? As a matter of fact, the Scripture makes it very clear that those who, who, who get praise here on earth, that they've already received their reward, Remember? Their reward's already been given them. So reward is something that, though it is, some, it is a truth which we recognize and that we are to acknowledge and we are to be mindful of without question, we are not to live, we are not to serve, we are not to work, we are not to exist for the sole basis that we might gain some reward. And I think when that is the emphasis, there's actually a misunderstanding of the reward altogether. And I want us to see that even from the Scriptures tonight. So while rewards are biblical teaching, our service to the Lord should never simply be based on what we can gain as His servants. But rather, our focus should remain on the truth of the worth of the God whom we serve. What's more, Paul expressed that the great prize is Jesus Himself. Philippians three ten through 14 listen to what Paul says. That I may know Him... And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I'd already attained, either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend, for that which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count on myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do... Forgetting those things which are behind. And remember, Paul, the context here is Paul saying, I am forgetting all those inferior things, as we have discovered throughout our study of Philippians already, thus far into our study on Sunday mornings. Paul is saying, everything else is inferior. When he says, I'm forgetting those things that are behind, he's, just not, he's not merely saying, oh, I'm forgetting about all my past sins. and I'm for-. No, he's saying, I am leaving behind all the inferior things for that which is superior, which is knowing Jesus. Then he goes on to say, Reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is, I may know him, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is the prize? It's knowing Christ. This is the prize. Although rewards are taught in Scripture, they are never the emphasis throughout the Scriptures. While I do not believe that John's focus is on reward, he does mention reward in this passage in verse 8. Nonetheless, the Apostle Paul also expounded on this furthermore in his epistle to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 14 and 15. Or 4 through 15, I'm sorry. Paul says, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed? even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted a polished water, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Notice what he says here. He didn't say labors together for God. He said we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul said this, For I am now, re- all, now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness." which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. So here, John, or here Paul speaks about reward in both of these passages which we've just read. And the most interesting thing about the rewards which we will receive as followers and servants of Jesus Christ, as Paul mentions here, especially in 1 Corinthians, is that the reward we receive is the result of God's work accomplished through us. And recognizing this truth at that time, we will gladly and humbly cast the reward at the feet of he who alone is worthy of any and all reward, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation four ten and 11, we're told, "...the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." Now with some question who the 4 and 20 elders are in Revelation chapter 4, it is believed that these are representative of redeemed men or the church. How fitting that all the redeemed would recognize and humbly give back to the Lord who had given to them. And so when we read these passages, there are many more that deal with rewards throughout the scriptures, but I wanted to pull these out, these few, and mention this to you, specifically in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says that we are laborers together, with God. And he goes on to say, he says, I've planted a polished water, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. He says, the planter is nothing. The water is nothing. It is God who is everything. And he's the one who gives increase. And then he goes on to say that he that planteth, he that watereth in verse eight of first Corinthians three, He that planteth, he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are laborers together with God. We are labors together with God. Notice that. We are laboring, but it is God who is doing the work. It is God who is giving the increase. It is God who is supplying and providing that we may even labor in this work. We are his husband, or we are his building, and he says, You are God's husbandry, you are God's building. And according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, he says, I have laid the foundation. Here he's saying, I've done this work, I've laid the foundation, but it is Christ who is this foundation. No other foundation can any man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ, he goes on to say. So here Paul is explaining that yes, there's reward for the labors, but yet the labors are in reality simply us submitting to God who is working in and through us to accomplish his purpose. And so, Paul is explaining that truth here, even concerning reward. And then he goes on to say, in verse 11. Well, let's look at verse 10 again. According to the grace of God, which given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, Other and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, Talk about this foundation of Jesus Christ being laid. For other foundation can no man lay than it is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation... Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it hath been revealed by fire, shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so by, as by fire. So here's the example Paul is given. There's gold. He says foundation, gold, silver, precious stones. And then he gives the wood, hay, and the stubble. And it's very interesting here because when you think about the building materials that are being spoken of, men build with wood, hay, and stubble. And it's talking about those earthly things. And if, we are, if that's what's being built, he says, that's going to be consumed at the judgment seat of Christ. These things will not last. But then even that which is built upon the foundation being gold and silver, precious stones, even upon that foundation, the work will still be tried by fire. And there's a reason for that as well. And we must never forget this. Even that which God does through us, we still taint it by our own flesh. And it must be tried by fire because the only thing that is eternal is the work of God. There isn't Even the work that we do for God is not eternal. God's work done in us and through us is eternal. And so that will be tried by fire. There is a judgment seat of Christ. There is a time we will stand before Him as believers. There is going to be a fire, not for us before the works which have been done in and through us. And that which is done by God is going to stand the test of time and it's going to be purified meaning all that we have tainted it with will be done away with and only the work of God stands. But that which we have done or attempted to do for God is going to be completely consumed because it's not of God at all. And that does not mean the man's not saved. He says, oh yeah, still saved, yet so is by fire. And the point is saying that All that has been done is purified and purged or completely eradicated. Notice this. This really is the bottom line. When we stand before the Lord as his people, not at the judgment seat of Christ, that which he has done in and through us, that's what's going to stand. That's what's going to be a testament of what has been accomplished in and through our lives and to his glory by his own working, by his own spirit, by his power. And that which we have done or attempted to do for God that is not God doing it in and through us is going to be completely consumed. And thank God that it is. And the reason I say that is because we have nothing to offer God. All we can offer Him is that which He has done in and through us which is His work, not ours to begin with. And so all this will be burned by fire. All this will be tried and purified. And so it's very interesting, again as I mentioned, that we... We'll stand before the Lord. Our works will be tried. They're going to be purified by fire. And that which God has done will last. But this is what he says. If a work remains, then we receive the reward for that work. But here's the irony of that. We didn't do the work. If it remained, it's God's work. Because anything we do is burned by fire. So all that remains is that which God has done. That which God has now perfected and burn away any of the thing anything that we have tainted it with and this is what stands and you know what God says okay now I'm going to reward you for the work that I did in you and this is why you find in revelation that the 4 and 20 elders fall down and cast their crowns before the throne saying thou art worthy O Lord to receive glory honor and power Why would they say that? Because they recognize at that point any reward that they have been given has nothing to do with anything they did. But it's all that which God has done, and therefore they give back the reward to God. Now, look, you say, well, why would God go through this? Oh, thank God that He does. Look at the grace and mercy of God in this. God is doing a work in his people. There's no doubt about that. He has redeemed us. That's a great work. He continues to perform and perfect this work of redemption in our lives through sanctification. He is constantly conforming us to the image of his son. That is a great work, is it not? And along the way, he's allowed us to take part in his eternal purpose that he is working and allowing us to be stewards of the gospel and allowing us to minister one to another and allowing us to submit to his spirit who lives and dwells in us to do a work unto his glory and honor. But it's all him. It's not us. He is doing it. We're just the vessels he's using to accomplish this. And then one day we will stand before him and all that's been done in our entire lives as believers will be tested by fire. Everything we've done, everything that we have put our hands in is tainted by us. And God is going to purge that purify the work and then he's going to reward for that work that he has done allowing us then to give back to him that which he has rewarded because we recognize it's not that we deserve this at all he deserves all the glory and honor because anything and everything that's been accomplished in and through our lives is all of god's work And so God has given us the privilege, think about this for a moment, what a privilege it is as we would submit to God here, God will reward that submission with reward which then we will give back to Him because we know the only reason we submitted is because He is working in us to bring us to that submission. We don't understand all that right now necessarily, we don't, but we will. We will. We will understand that. There is no one who's going to stand before the Lord as a believer and stand up and say, well, Lord, don't I get a reward for doing that? (laughs) The reward that is given is going to be recognized that it's all God's work. Therefore, he deserves all the glory for what he's accomplished. And that God would allow us to even take part in this. What a beautiful truth and reality that is. And so notice what John says here. In verse 8, let's go back to that. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Here John is saying, watch carefully. Look to yourselves. He's saying, listen, there has been a great work that has been wrought that God has done, and he's allowed us to take part in this. He's allowed you to be a part in this. He says, but watch carefully lest you lose the reward for all that has been wrought. Don't forfeit that, is what John is saying. Because, obviously, if we are boasting of what we do, we are forfeiting any reward. If we take credit for what God has done, we are forfeiting all reward. Do you understand that? It's all glory to Him. And if we're not giving Him the glory here right now, then the reality is there will be nothing which we will have to throw at His feet to give glory unto Him in eternity. (laughs) If we're not glorifying Him now for all that's been done. And so the reward that is given is the work of God that's been accomplished. We read Sunday morning and I actually reread it and I was thinking about that as I was preparing through this study for this evening. And I went through this and read it again as I mentioned Sunday morning because I thought it was worthy for us to know. And let's look at what David says again. In 1 Chronicles 29:11 through 14. And again, I emphasize this Sunday morning, and we see the same truth, though, even in our study this evening in relation to giving back to God that which He has given. Thine, O Lord, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Verse 14, here it is. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee." David says it, speaking in an earthly, temporal setting, and he says, all the sacrifices that we offer unto you, we can only offer them unto you because you have given them to us to offer unto you. David recognized that in an earthly setting. He says, you own all things. All wealth comes from you. All goodness comes from you. You are majestic. There's none other as you are. All power is yours. Any honor that is That any man receives is at your hand providing or allowing that honor to exist. And then he says, and who am I and who are my people that we would offer after this manner unto you sacrifices and offerings? For we understand that the offerings that we make unto you came from you so that we might offer them back to you. That was in an Old Testament physical setting. If that was true then... How much more so is that true in eternity? That anything that we have been given as a reward for what God has accomplished, that we will fully recognize, as David did here, that Lord, we give unto you because we recognize what we give unto you only exists because of what you had done in us. And it's nothing we produced of our own hands. It's nothing we produced of our own will. It's nothing we produced of our own labor. It is your work being done in and through us and now we give back to you that which you have given to us now while some would stop not understanding the significance of this and again ask why why would god even do he's allowing us the privilege to give back to him from all that he has accomplished what a what a merciful god What a gracious God that He would even allow us that privilege and that honor. No one in heaven is going to be walking about with their crown on their head in some hierarchy, claiming that, oh yeah, I see you didn't get a crown. (laughs) No! We will cast our crowns at His feet. Because, listen, in eternity it will be clear to all believers that God alone, Christ alone, deserves all glory, all praise, all worship, all honor, all majesty. And He will share that with none other. He's not going to share that with us, and say, well, you did pretty good, so here. You know, you keep this crown, go put it in your closet when you need to pull it out. You know, listen, it's all belong, it all belongs to him. It all will be given to him. And John says, look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we, we receive a full reward. So again, when John makes a statement, he's not saying it from self-centered, some selfish, self-centered, motivated reason, saying, oh, well, you know, go, be careful, don't, don't, don't fail in this, because I want to make sure I get my reward. No, he's saying, I don't want to be empty-handed before God, I want to be involved in giving back to the Lord the glory and honor He so rightfully deserves, and we must be careful, we must watch ourselves, that we not forfeit... The reward which God has provided and given in all that He has accomplished and done. Here's the the reality of it. Not one believer in Jesus Christ has any excuse to be empty-handed before the Lord because God is faithfully working in and through us. It will be us forfeiting that which attempting to claim to claim some ability to claim some merit for what is being accomplished to claim that we have some involvement in what God has done or is doing therefore all this is obviously forfeited so we can understand from this statement John's exhortation to watch yourself that the reward not be lost to watch carefully is not a selfishly selfishly motivated warning but John is not concerned that he gain a reward in which he could boast that's the whole point here if John's interested in is on boasting, then there's no reward for him to begin with. You understand? So he's not claiming, oh, watch yourselves carefully so that I can boast of reward one day. But rather that he might receive the reward of that which God had done and would do that they might be, then be given back to the Lord that which he is due. I, I confess to you, I, I do stand in awe of this truth. I do. God does all the work He rewards us in whom He accomplishes His work so that we might then participate in eternity in giving back to Him His due. This is truly a mystery of our God, is it not? That He would even allow us this privilege. The reward is not for us to boast in. That's the reality. So people who have a a misconstrued understanding of this reward, they think it's so they can gain, they can gain. it's not about your gain, it's about you giving back to Him and the honor and privilege of being able to do that. And so John says, watch carefully, be careful that you not be deceived, do not fall into heresies, do not allow that which has been accomplished by the truth of God in you to now be wasted, in a sense, by you forfeiting truth for error, which then, of course, is forfeiting all that which has been accomplished. So watch carefully, he says. There is reward. And we are to be mindful that there is reward. But again, I I remind you of this truth. Our service to God should never be based on our gain from how we serve or what we do. It should always be based on His worth. On our submission to He who is worthy of of all glory, honor, praise, service, labor, submission. He is worthy. We don't do what we do to get something out of it. We submit to Him because He's worthy of our submission. We serve Him because He's worthy of our service. We love Him because He's worthy of love, is He not? We follow Him because He's worthy to be followed. And the more so we recognize His worth, the more submitted and surrendered we will be to Him and through our lives. And therefore, we again, we recognize any reward that we receive, it's only by the grace of God. It's only by His work in us. But what a privilege to be a participant in giving back to Him. And again, that's exactly what David says in 1 Chronicles 29 concerning worshiping God, concerning sacrifice. Who are we? What am I? Who are my people that we would be able to offer to you after this sort? For everything we give you is a direct result of what you've given us. We only give because you've given. What you are receiving is that which was already yours to begin with. That's what David is saying. And I say to you tonight, in eternity, whatever we give and cast before the Lord, we're only giving back to him that which already belonged to him. (laughs) There is a reward, but let me tell you, the greatest reward and prize is knowing Jesus.